If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. I will be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Blessed is God's holy command to us in these verses, the infallible, rich love of our Father to our souls. So, dear Father, allow the the treasure and the beauty and the power of these verses, allow them to not just be heard, but listened to, obeyed. Allow them to move us, we who have died with your son in baptism and been raised up to new life in Him. May we be energized by the work of Your Spirit today and tomorrow and throughout our lives by the truth, by the goodness, by the precious command that we will look at this morning to the glory of Your name. Amen. So, I remember last week as we delved into chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. I told you that I was going to come back and concentrate on the one main point of that whole section of verses 1 to 10. And so here we are. And that one main point is right there in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands or remains. Here's the command. Let us Christians fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So remember what we saw last week, chapter 4, look at it. It begins with the word, therefore, which means he's drawn a conclusion from what went before, his pretty much most of chapter 3, summarized at the very last verse of chapter 3, verse 19. So again, let's read verse 19 of chapter 3, flow into the next verse, chapter 1, together and see if we see it. So we see that that they, under Moses in the wilderness, were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, what is the writer's conclusion from the fact that Israel, as a whole, was not able to enter God's promised rest because of their unbelief? What is his conclusion to us? To the original Christians he's writing to, or to us today? From that, his conclusion is to look the Christian in the eye and say, therefore, let us fear. But why fear? It's right there. In other words, for what purpose, for what goal should we fear? It's in the purpose clause. In other words, fear in order that something does not happen. That's what the word lest means. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, he's saying you don't want to be like Israel as a whole under Moses and miss God's rest because of unbelief. So what is it that he particularly here tells us to fear? It's unbelief. The connection with verse 19 is crystal clear. So we see they were unable to enter God's promise, rest, because of unbelief. Fear, therefore, that unbelief. Because that's what will keep you from entering God's rest. Fear, not trusting in God. Then verse 2, look at it. It confirms this. Notice it begins with the word for, which means he's unpacking now what he just said, given a reason for it. Fear unbelief. Why? Verse 2, because good news came to us Christians, just as it did to them under Moses. But, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united, here it is again, by faith. That's belief. That's trusting. It was, they were not united by faith with those who listened. So he continues to compare Israel's situation in the wilderness under Moses to the situation of Christians today. They had good news, the gospel, preached to them. And we have had good news, the gospel preached to us. What was the good news that was preached to them? It's there in Moses. I mean, I mean be, besides being set free and delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And, and the good news of promising what he promised Abraham, their forefather, to give them that land of, of Canaan. Besides that, there's the good news of Mount Sinai. 
Exodus chapter 34, if you'll turn there. Listen to the gospel here, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, or Yahweh, passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It was good news. The good news of God's love, of His mercy, of His forgiveness of their sins. And so the writer says that the Israelites, they heard the gospel. They heard the good news, just like we Christians have. I mean, the, 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 what's the difference? The, the difference is the gospel that, that later David would hear and got saved by. The, the only difference is they didn't have a clue how God would really do that. Because it hadn't happened in history yet. And that is, how could you forgive David of his horrific sin? of adultery and murder. He didn't know how until Christ came. So, so we have that information of how because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But nevertheless, that good news was preached to them under Moses. They heard that good news of God's merciful covenant love has said loving kindness that forgives their sins and promises a real rest and a joy for those who believe, who trust in Him. In other words, the vast majority of them whom God swore they will not enter His rest, it wasn't everyone, they heard the same good news that Caleb heard and that Joshua and Caleb and Joshua were regenerated by it. They were saved by it. They were justified by it. They believed and entered not just Canaan, but God's real rest that we saw last week. And then the vast majority of their brothers heard the same message, and it didn't save them. Because they did not believe. They did not trust in that God of that message as a whole. And thus they did not enter that rest. The picture, not getting into Canaan, as we saw last week, the real eternal rest that is offered to each soul of man. And then verse 2 says... Here, the result of their unbelief was that the promise of good news did not benefit them. It was of 
no value to them. It didn't save them. So both verse 19 and verse 2 sandwich verse 1. Verse 1 says, fear, let us fear. 19 and verse 2 let us know, well, what he's clearly saying is fear, unbelief in you. Fear, unbelief rising up in your heart. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear unbelief because good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith in those who heard and those who listened. So, the main point, so passage, is fear this happening to you. Fear, hearing God's gracious promises of mercy and forgiveness and kindness. Fear, hearing them and not trusting them. The text says, why should we do that? It says, because the same thing will happen to us. That happened to them. That is, we won't enter God's rest of eternal life if we find that we're like them. That's the text. And th that's why I feel, in the context of American evangelicalism, no inhibition to say what I just said as clearly as I just said it, because my confidence rests in the written word of God that's right before us. That's the main point. So there is a command to us Christians. I say it unambiguously. It is to fear unbelief. What he says. And then remember last week, we, we looked at verses 3 to 10 and unfolded them where he goes on to explain that the availability of God's rest was from the very beginning of the garden all the way through. Okay? And now look at, down at verse 11 where he concludes. He concludes by saying essentially the same thing again now about fearing unbelief in different words. Let us therefore strive strive that's that's conscious determination going to a particular place strive to what to enter that rest oh there's a rest now and it's connected to the rest that is to come in the resurrection and for all who are truly saved they have both, but the one hadn't happened yet, and so there's still a future aspect to it. So strive to enter that rest so that no one of you professing Christians may fall by the same sort of disobedience as under Moses. In other words, Israel fell from the promised joy of God that He gave to them 
because of their disobedience of unbelief. And the same thing can happen to professing Christians. And to keep it from happening and to show that we're more than merely professing Christians, the text says, strive to enter God's rest. So the text is clear. The goal is not to fail to enter God's rest. Okay, how do I get to the goal? He gives us the means. God hands us, through the writer, the means. It is fear. Fear, unbelief. That's your means. That's our text. Now, the hard part, okay, okay, practically, what does that mean? I mean, how do we live day by day? What what is he really saying? What does it mean? And this is often a very important other question. What does it not mean? So in other words, how do we go about obeying the command in this text to fear? So, to help us with that, I want us to turn, and I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Romans and go to the Apostle Paul. In Romans, I'm going to turn to Romans 11, verses 17 to 22, because this passage is such a parallel to our own passage here in Hebrews. And so, as we slowly read through it and think about it, let it help us understand what it actually means for our own lives to fear unbelief, how to work this out in our everyday lives. Romans 11, start with verse 17. But if some of the branches, the Jews who were unbelieving in the gospel, if some of the branches were broken off and you, a non-Jew, a Gentile Christian in Rome, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Salvation comes from the Jews. He says, if that's true of you, Christian, Gentile, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember It is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say to me, Paul, Paul, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Now we'll listen to Paul's conclusion. So, or in other words, therefore, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity 
of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So let's do again, follow slowly the thought pattern here, starting with verse 20 to 22. Paul says, church, Christian, baptized person, you stand firm or fast. How? Through your faith, trusting, going on and on, believing. You stand fast. Through faith. He's saying your life, your, your, your salvation, your remaining in this tree of covenant love in Christ depends on your persevering faith. And then he says, so don't become proud. Don't become arrogant against unbelievers or particularly in that case, well, the, look at the, the Jews. It was given to you. Jesus is a Jew He's for you and you reject Him, but I believe there's no arrogance there. He says, do not do that. So what do you do positively? Answer, fear. That's what he says. So Paul was also saying that there's a very important role for fear in the Christian's life. In order to maintain and persevere in faith to the end. See verse 20? You stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but do this, fear. Then he continues in verse 21. Oh, he gives you the reason why. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you if you, don't, if you turn away from trusting him. You turn away from God. Turn away from Faith in the gospel. In other words, he says there's a reason to fear. If you give in to unbelief, you stop trusting Christ for your life and your hope, he says then you will be cut off. That's what he says. Therefore, every time unbelief, which this is the Christian life here, every time unbelief in God or in a command or in His promises because of our, we're broken, our sinfulness as true Christians. Every time unbelief starts to rise in your desire factory, in, in, your, in, your, in your heart, He says, fear it. Fear that. And fear causes one to act, doesn't it? You ever almost get hit by a car walking in a cross? Fear caused you to make a move. It's like what Paul says about the Christian life to the Philippians, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So when unbelief starts to win over your heart, dear Christian, fear it. Tremble at that and run away from the car or run 
into the arms of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now let's, let's notice, stay there in Romans 11, the practical help that Paul gives to us in verse 22. Note then what? The kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You see what he's saying? Paul is saying that since it's ongoing faith that is utterly important in the baptized Christian's life in order to be saved in the end, since fear has a key role in helping us continue in faith, Paul says now, note something. Literally, it's the word to see. And it's in the imperative. He says, look. That's what he's telling the Christian to do. That's what he's telling you to do. Look at something. Look at what? He says, look at two things. Look at the kindness of God. Look at it. And... Look at the severity of God. Or you can say it this way. Look at the mercy of God and look at the wrath of God. Look at the salvation of God. Look at the coming judgment of God. Or just to say it this way. Don't look only at His gentler side. Because that would be bad for your faith. So, how do I persevere in faith? To the end, so that I don't fail to reach God's rest. His answer is fear, unbelief in your heart. Okay, how do I do that? How do I get myself in a place where I fear unbelief and maintain my faith? Paul says, you look. Really look at the gospel. That is, the kindness of God. And look at the truth of the severity of God. Look at both. This is how we keep our faith red hot in this life. It's how we fight the fight of faith. Because your faith is shaped by what you look at. I don't know if you've had a time during your Christian journey or others or friends we know, when you meet someone 
you were doing life with as a Christian years ago and you meet up now more than a decade later or two and you find that their life is not at all what it was. It didn't just happen. It's what they were looking at and what they were not looking at. If you look at the kindness and you look at the severity of God, the way that God puts them together in the Scripture, the way that they're meant to be seen, then your faith will grow stronger and stronger. But if you neglect, if you neglect the Bible, if you neglect thinking about the meaning in the Bible and in, in, in the text after text after text, then you won't see the severity of God and the kindness of God the way that God means for you to see them and you won't understand them and you'll end up misinterpreting them. And thus, you'll probably end up finding fault with God and His severity. And you'll try to tell yourself and tell other people something about God that is untrue in order to maintain your quote-unquote Christian faith. Or you just end up denying there's a severity to God at all. Or you might start even thinking that you're deserving of God's kindness and you take it for granted. To maintain strong faith, we must look at the kindness of God and the severity of God laid out in the Bible. They're all over the place. People that don't see that, I just, I, I know what really does happen because we get dependent upon people like me. Pastor teaches, and it's like I've been for 10 years, never even heard a sermon on fear, the fear of God. And they just avoid it. But you do have a Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, I mean, these two things are just constantly throughout. So I'm just going to give two examples. So let's go first, because of the context of the Hebrew writer, let's go to the gospel under Moses. Again, where we were earlier, Exodus 34. Because you will see here, the gospel preached to them, it includes what Paul's talking about. The kindness of God and the severity of God. Start with verse 6 first. Notice the kindness of the Lord. The Lord, or Yahweh, passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What kindness! Now, the very next words then bring the severity. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's how the Bible puts it. Well, let's, let, let, let's go to the way Jesus preached the gospel in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew 10, verses 28 to 31, notice Jesus will flip it around. In this here, he starts with the severity, and then he'll go to the kindness. Verse 28, our Lord says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, that is God, rather fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then his very next words after that severity. He looks at his disciples. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, meaning His will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more of more value to Him than many birds or sparrows. So how is it that our looking, our noting God's kindness and His severity help us persevere in faith and not be like Israel who failed to enter it? Again, notice what Paul says in Romans 11. That God's severity and God's kindness play different roles in His children's lives. Not the same rule. In verse 22, Romans 11, he says, Note then, or see, or look at the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. It's not you, is it? But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. So He doesn't say, provided you continue in His severity. You're not in that, if you believe. Are you walking, present tense, continually with Him? Here's the key. The goal of looking at the severity is to keep you in His kindness. Kindness is what you run to. Severity of a car in the street is what you run from. That's how faith acts. Okay. Back to verse 1 of Hebrews. 
4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his safety, kindness, rest, still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So now, so, okay, what now does it mean? Does this command to let us fear mean that we are to live in a constant anxiety of being lost? The answer is unequivocally and biblically clear. No, it is not this gnawing anxiety. So here's my illustrations. It's, it's like when we used to live on Thornburn Street. They would fly down that street. And raising six kids, we almost for hundreds of years had three-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-olds. I would instill, because I'm a good parent in my wife would, a fear because there's something to fear. You see the street, you see the car, little Matthew. See how fast it just went? If you're in front of it, you're going to be killed. Okay. So here's, here's my love for you now. I'm not saying don't go into the street. I'm saying here's our lawn, here's a sidewalk, and here is some more grass. Before the curb in the street, you are not allowed to go past the sidewalk, even into that area. Other than that, have a ball, which they did. If they ever got close to that street, appropriately, it hits them. Fear arises. That would be bad. And what does it do? It motivates them, stops their body, turn around the other way. Safety. Car. Bad. Or, or, or like when we would go up to Palace Verdes. And you know when you on this side of Palace Verdes with the cliffs and you drive and just park your car and then there's sometimes it's like a, a football field or more length from there to the edge of the cliff. Bring chairs and a blanket and have a picnic and bring balls. And the kids are little. I don't say only. Uh, there's a cliff there. It's 150 feet down to the rocks. If you fall over, you're, you're going to be killed. That's true. I would tell them the danger of that. But then I would mark a spot probably somewhere around 15 feet. My rule is not don't go over the cliff. My rule is here's the spot. Don't go past this line. I'll put a shoe here. And so as we're out here for hours kicking a ball or throwing a ball, if it ever goes over there, you are not allowed to go past that line. Because if you do, you may fall. And if you do fall over that cliff, it's death. And so, what does that mean then? You think, does that mean that all day long the children can have no fun and they're just wrought with anxiety and just, just go home? Not at all. Because the clarity is there. They know the reality there. They're looking at both the kindness of a picnic and family time and play and have a ball. They're, most of the day they're not even thinking about dying on a cliff. They're playing and free 
And then the ball goes that way. And then one runs and then free like, you know, kids can be. And then all of a sudden it hits them as they got closer and closer. Fear rose because they're approaching danger. That's what he's saying here. That's the way it is with fear unbelief. It's not living in a life of constant anxiety at all. Unbelief comes, manifests itself in an action, thought, sin. Oh, the kindness of the Lord. I'm in Christ. If we confess our sins, He's faithful, He's righteous to forgive us. Part of faith is believing that. It's not saying, wait a minute, I was really, really bad today. So let let me kind of like whip myself further or something and act as if God doesn't forgive me. Well, that's unbelief. Believe the gospel. Look at the kindness of God. Look at the blood of Christ. Look at what He did to do it. Know that it's not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about God. And He is righteous to forgive your sins. He loves the glory of forgiving you, His children, through the cross of His Son. It glorifies Him. It's His pleasure. He forgives us our sins for His name's sake, not for yours. And belief, faith, in that kind trust that it banks its own life and its future and its eternity on God loving His own glory through saving you. In Christ. So, when you experience the fear, why? Because your heart is going astray. And if your heart's going astray and it goes on and on, don't wait. Draw the lines in your life, not not at falling on the cliff, but before you get close to that cliff, let the Word of God put these signs there that appropriate fear happens. Because what does happen if you don't and you get deceived and deceived to not listen to a sermon and a text like this, you'll go through a barrier where you should have been fearing. And it was kind of fearful, but you still broke through and you didn't repent and you did it again and did it again. You get to the place, you're walking around blinded, not even knowing there's a cliff. You're so hard. So fear is this wonderful gift. In other words, the fear of God, another way to say it is the fear of what it would mean for you not to go on repenting and trusting in God and trusting in the gospel. That's a fearful process. Therefore, the normal Christian life is aware of the fearful danger of unbelief in each of our own hearts that may arise but we're not paralyzed by that fear. It's not an anxiety disorder that we should get medication for. We live in faith. We live in joy in the kindness of God. Fear only arises appropriately, godly fear, where faith 
starts to weaken. And that fear, the fear of unbelief then is our friend. And, and it, it gets us back to the peaceful rest of faith in God's promises. So I close again with our text. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, Christian, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let's pray. Father, You who created heaven and earth, your throne is above all. The earth and the universe is your footstool. You are perfectly right in all your ways. We thank you for the revelation of your severity. And we thank you for the revelation and the action of your mercy, kindness, and goodness that upheld your glory in forgiving we who are utterly undeserving of saving and bringing into your family to the experience in part now as a down payment by your spirit and in the resurrection to come in a fullness of joy all through the cost of your son to show the price of your glory, which is for us and our enjoyment forever. So teach us to walk, to continue to walk, to persevere in our walk, to let us fear and to hate our own unbelief as it rises to turn again and again to the treasure and the comfort and the presence of your written word and of your Holy Spirit as long as it is called today. To the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand.